Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you so much for tuning into the Big Honker Podcast. The past couple of months have been some amazing growth, and we appreciate every single one of you. Please go check out our YouTube channel, Big Honker Podcast. It's super easy to find. Uh, all of our episodes go up on it, and the first family of waterfowl is up on our YouTube channel, the Big Honker Podcast. Go check out no, season subscribe. one. Subscribe. Like and subscribe. Season one, because season two, we are filming now. We will be filming season two, episode two, next week. Okay, here we go, folks. If you're going to go hunt ducks, any kind of waterfowl, you're hunting dove, you might as well be shooting the best. Shoot boss. Go unleaded, folks. Boss is the way at bossshotshells.com. Reach out to the mad scientist over there. They've got it going on. It's the best stuff in the world. I've been waterfowl hunting for basically 50 years now, probably 47 to be exact. 47 years, and it's like I'm going back in time because when you hit them with boss, it's like shooting lead back in 1974. So anyways, go check them out at BossShotShells.com. Also, go check out Dive Bomb Industries for all of your silhouette needs. Uh, I got this question a lot. How many do it? What's the minimum amount of silhouettes that I need to have a successful hunt? If you're hunting lesser specs, it's 50 dozen. That's the number. Dive Bomb has made it extremely cost efficient to have a lot of decoys. And they pack up nice and neat. You always got to get the bags. Keep your trailer looking clean, looking fresh all season long. Uh, you can't go wrong with anything that dive bombs. What's sells. what's dive bombs? What's it run for five dozen? Uh, three fifty. They might have gone up. Might be let's like say four hundred. Let's say it's four hundred dollars. Four hundred dollars for for. So, so you're gonna need four thousand dollars for four thousand dollars. Four of your buddies can chip in. Everybody throws in a thousand dollars, and you got a lesser spread to yep. rival anybody else's. Works perfect. It's easy to put up. It's easy to store. No problem at all. It's divebombindustries.com. And check out their floaters if you hunt a lot of ponds. So. Go check out the boys at Pacific Custom Calls. They have made my favorite call in the entire planet, the BA Lesser Call. It is a screamer. It feels good in my hand, and it rips. So they've also got a promo code. If you want to save a little bit of money, which who doesn't, use the promo code BHP25. You can save 25% off at checkout. They've got the best duck call on the market with the PCD, and uh, their spec calls are out of this world. They have two spec calls that you can choose from, the 530 which is one that I really like. And they also brought, they launched a brand new speckle belly call, the BBS. It's a board out speckle belly call. It is easy to run and it sounds phenomenal. So check them out, pacificcustomcalls.com. You can look them up on Instagram, Pacific Calls, and use that promo code. It's there for a reason, BHP25. Also, check out the boys over at, or the man over at Gun Dog Outdoors, Mr. Alex Langbell. Alex is in Canada shooting the piss out of the oh birds my, at me right he's now. He's wearing my speckle bellies out. There's not going to be any specs down here this year. He's going to he's he'll have killed them all. But you need the field trauma kit in your pickup truck and in your blind bag. It's got everything that you need to stitch a wound, stop some bleeding. Alex is a retired first responder, so everything in the field trauma kit is what you're going to need. Also, I like the quick release system. I latch Lou in, and it's got just a little pulley whenever I'm ready to send them. Pull that off of him, and away he goes. And then when he comes back, just hook him back up. Keeps him safe and out of the line of fire. So if you've got a dog that breaks, or even if you have a dog that doesn't break, and you want to prevent an accident from happening, check out the quick release system. He's also got check cords. He's got uh, food and water bowls. He's got it all. So check him out, Gundog Outdoors. And we're brought to you by Jeff Stanfield Approved Shin Gear Waiters. I'll just let you take this one, Jeff. I busted out the waiters this time for the yeah. first time in probably 20 years, 25 years. I've never seen you in waiters, so it's been Mate, that long. Twenty Over 25 years. Most comfortable waiters I've ever worn for sure in my life. 
The thing that was the comfort was the easy to get in and easy to get out. Nothing worse than putting on a pair of waders. I'm telling you right now, especially if you've got a, a belly. If you got a little muffin top going on, little, waders little are pooch. a pooch. Well, even a big pooch. Waders, the bigger the pooch, the harder it is to get them on. Pain in the ass to put off and on. These got a zipper on them. I mean, whoever's ever thought about putting a zipper in the damn waders? You unzip them, you put them on, you zip it back up. The boots get on perfect. When you get done, you zip it down a little bit and you just kind of push the boot and they come right off. The best most comfortable waders on the market. It's a once-in-a-lifetime investment. You buy them once, you don't ever have to buy them another pair the rest of your life at shingearwaders.com. Because they have a guarantee that they will stand behind their product for as long as you stand in them. So if you put a hole in it, you send them back, they fix it and send it right back to you. So customer service is unmatched. Also brought to you by the boys over at Lucky Duck. And the ladies, I guess I should say, too. i got to quit saying just the guys. Yeah, There's yeah. a lot of women out there. A little, little chauvinistic. It's dove season here in Texas. It is teal season here in Texas. And let me tell you, they got spinners for everything. Uh, dove, duck, uh, they got goose flappers, which are good for later in the year. Uh, but right now we're focusing on dove. And I tell you what, six, seven of those dove spinners out there, and they, they the dove will commit like ducks. It is fa- It's fascinating to watch. Um, they've also got one of the best blinds on the market, the two by four blind. Um, if you're a predator hunter, they've got stuff for you, uh, as far as e-collars and stuff. So kind of, uh, they got, they got a wide variety of, of things that you can buy. So you should check them out at luckyduck.com. And if you're needing motion of some sort, and my favorite product of 2022 is the Lucky Duck Swimmer HDI. You put it on the water and it looks like a duck swimming in your decoys. So, unrivaled motion got a good looking wake on it and it looks fantastic i cannot wait to use it this year that is at luckyduck.com also brought to you by logan and rebel over at looking glass duck club podcast all you got to do is go to their patreon type in the looking glass podcast donate to their patreon account and you will have access to their entire library and we have a giveaway going on with them and details to follow uh it's going to be for a a three man three a three man goose hunt Three-day goose hunt, six-man. Six-man, so, three-days goose hunt, lodge and meals come in on Sunday, leave on Wednesday, get a hangout with Logan Pite, the legend himself, Mr. Oakland Raider, Las Vegas Raider, Mr. Owen 2 Raiders, matter of fact, at that deal at this point. Him time. and I are big Raiders fans. They're big Raiders fans, big, big, big Raiders fans. So check them out at Looking Glass Duck Club Just go podcast. to go to their Patreon, and it'll just type in their podcast, and away you go. And if you want to be comfortable this hunting season, need to do it in the Stanfield stool made by Alpha Outdoor Industries. And they've also got a blind caddy coming up for your favorite two-by-four blinds. There you go. A hook onto your A-frame blind, and then you can keep all of your stuff uh, right there in front of you. The Stanfield stool is phenomenal. These guys are a machine shop, so if you've got an idea for a product that you think that the waterfowl world needs to see, I highly suggest that you get a hold of them, and they can mock up whatever uh, crazy idea you might have. So uh, the Stanfield stool, can't wait to use it. Also, we're brought to you by Bangtail Whiskey, Mr. Brandon Bing. Uh, he has crafted a delicious taste in whiskey along with making some outstanding music. Uh, Bangtail Whiskey is not for the faint of heart. Bangtail embodies the select few who believe in hard work and relish in the opportunity to take a step back to enjoy the fruits of their labor. Whether relaxing for a midweek swaller or communing on the weekend with quality people, Bangtail is sure to provide a truly unique and tasteful experience time and time again. With deep southern roots, Bangtail provides a first-class, handcrafted whiskey experience. Pour a jigger of Bangtail and enjoy. Must be 21 years or older. Brought to you by our good friends at Stanfield Hunting Outfitters. If you need a hunt, 
camping trip, <laughs> buy a canoe, go to Stanfield Hunting Outfitters. No, seriously, folks, Stanfield Hunting Outfitters. Me and Tony started this business 30 years ago. Proud to be in the business 30 years. Proud to be at Knox and Haskell County, Texas. If you're looking for a waterfowl hunt, I do have the week before Thanksgiving, I have an opening on Monday, Tuesday of the days before Thanksgiving, and I think I have those the, are primo dates, oh, by the way, premium days. And I and I have a couple of days still. I have the week before Christmas, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday before Christmas. I have room for one spot. So, anyways, both of those dates, six people, private party. We can shoot geese, ducks, cranes, anything you want to do. Lodging meals, pheasants, wild hogs. Uh, not even we do a domestic hog, I guess, if you wanted one. Anyways, give us a call, 940-658-3172 at Stanfield Hunting Outfitters. And every morning at Stanfield Hunting Outfitters, we start off with Dirty Duck Coffee. If your coffee's not the duck, it's going to suck. The Missouri Boat Ride Blend, a little bit of high velocity, gets me going every single morning out here. It's what I fill my thermos up with on those nice cold mornings in the blind. Check them out, dirtyduckcoffee.com. They've also got Instagram. They make fantastic premium roast coffee, and they've actually got a little contest going on right now so uh check out their instagram for details on it but yeah you go to their website you can order coffee ship straight to your door and it's delicious um i really 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 enjoy the missouri boat ride blend and i had sons up guns up one another one of their roasts at game fair and it was delicious also so you cannot go wrong no matter what you get from dirty duck coffee and we're brought to you by double t british kennels folks if you need a started dog you need a puppy you need your dog trained you need to call it Double T British Kennels. We had a British lab work here one time. Rhea, my dad brought it here in 1987, 88. As good a dog as I've ever been when it comes to be the disposition that they use, the looks, the drive, the smarts. You need to check out Corey and them at Double T British Kennels. Good looking dogs. Uh, they've got a stud, stud dog there. So um, check them out if you're needing a, a dog for this coming waterfowl season. They have dogs of every age and every level of training and uh, different ages. So you want a puppy, they got it. You want to start a dog, they got it definitely. So Double T British Kennels. Last but not least, we are brought to you by Ducks Unlimited. For 85 years, they have been putting ducks back into the sky for waterfowlers. Uh, 80 cents out of every dollar goes back into wetlands and uh, wetland conservation and ducks. So they put uh, they put their money where their mouth is, and you don't have to worry about your dollars not going to uh, what you think they are. They're a great organization at Ducks Unlimited, and we are proud to be associated with them. I hope that you would uh, become a Ducks Unlimited member or go to one of the uh, shows that they have coming up. Spend a little bit of money with them. It puts more ducks back in the sky for us. If you go to the duck factories anywhere in the United States and Canada, and you see where the ducks are making ducks, making whoopee and sending little baby ducks down the way. Everywhere you go, there'll be a DU head sticker everywhere you go. And when you see that duck head, you know exactly what it is. It'll be a DU facility, uh, conservation area, duck factory, whatever you want to call it. That's Ducks Unlimited. Check them out at, is it DucksUnlimited.org? Uh, I think it's Ducks.org. Ducks.org. Type in Ducks Unlimited into your search engine and they'll come up. I promise. Okay, our guest today is Mr. Robert Ewens. He is a proud Texan, and uh, he actually took a John boat through the Northwest Passage up in uh, up in Canada. And I tell you what, crazy, crazy story being at in in the Arctic Ocean in a John boat. So, uh, great guy, great attitude on him, and hope you enjoy this episode. Here he is, Robert Ewens.
All right, here we go. Three, two, one. Boom, and welcome to the Big Honker Podcast brought to you by Pacific Game Calls. Right here in the big city of Knox City, Texas, I'm Jeff Stanfield with the world-famous Andy Shaver. That's right. I'm here. No, it's a good place to be, huh? Yeah. With us today from Austin, Texas, home of the Texas Longhorns. Did they beat y'all this weekend? You're going Okay. Rack em. Mr. Robert Ewens. Robert, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. How y'all guys doing? Well, I, I'm doing better than I was Saturday when I had to listen to these tech people talk shit all day. So Get your guns up, baby. Get your guns up. <laughs> know about up. that. Okay, Robert, you are a descri- self-described adventurer. You're a retired and you said you did mm-hmm. your first your first adventure was you floated down the Mississippi River by yourself. Or not floated, I guess you paddled down the Mississippi River by yourself, which makes more sense than paddling up it. You paddled down it. Where, where did you put in and how where'd you go? Tell us that story. Uh, starting before that, I've been an adventurer all my life. Since I was 10 years old, I was running uh, flat-bottom boats out into the bays and stuff. And uh rode my bicycle out to the West coast when I graduated from high school. But, uh, the, the, uh, adventure I think you're referring to is, uh, uh, upon my first retirement, I, uh, I think it's in 2008, I, um, flew up to Minnesota and bought a canoe and launched in Lake Itasca and paddled it down to the Gulf of Mexico. How long did that take? Uh, spent 89 days camping out on the river. It was really nice. Did you eat? Did you just eat fish, or did you buy stuff in town? Did you stop and buy stuff to eat, or how'd that work? Well, I typically, uh, you know, stop in town and uh, buy enough food for several days, and uh, you know, put enough water in the boat for several days, and uh, head on downstream till I uh, needed something else. Uh, I'm I'm not a really big fisherman. I love to eat fish, and I can generally find someone to give me some of theirs. So that you're not a fisherman, but you will eat fish. What uh, what time of year did you do this? Um, I do it when I do most of my uh, adventures. I did it in the fall, uh, and um, I did that trip specifically to see the fall colors that we don't get to see in Texas, and uh, I rode the fall colors all the way down the river. It was really, uh, really nice. I crossed the Mississippi in, I guess, February of this year, and we crossed a little town called, it was up by Brainerd, north of there, and the Mississippi River was just a trickle there. It was, I mean, you could you could jump across it. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it is a teeny river. We, we, uh, you know, ended up dragging like the first, uh, probably close to 15 miles, dragging large portions of it. And then, um, then it becomes bigger and bigger and turns into this huge, uh, Goliath of a river we have down on the coast. How, uh, what was the, what was the work? Do you remember like what state you would have been in where the Mississippi river was the most treacherous? Um, Oh, the most turbulent I remember is uh, in Arkansas when some of the rivers are coming in, uh, into the river because there was a lot of speed coming in there and a, a lot of river turbulence uh, in that area. And that, so that was the worst part. Well, um, well, there was the, it's a pretty passive, huge river. Uh, I mean, there's some rapids up in the upper section uh, in Minnesota, but uh in the lower river, it's the thing you're going to get is these huge turbulences as uh, side rivers come into it. Now, which lake did you start off in? I'm looking at a map here, and I'm trying to figure this out. It's called Lake, lake Itasca. Lake it's, it- uh, 
considered the um, the headwaters of the Mississippi. There's a state park there in Minnesota. Okay, I'm looking. There's all kinds. Of, I can't figure it out, but don't. It's got to be. Yeah, it's, a, it's a teeny. It's in the far western portion of Minnesota. Um, so yeah, it's over there near Fargo, North Dakota. Yeah, that's what I'm looking at right now. That was a long deal. So you had to go through Minneapolis. Yeah, it took. Uh, it was 500 miles just to get to Minneapolis, St. Paul. Wow. And uh, yeah, it was. Uh, <clears throat> you know, by actually through that section, I had a partner for the first 500 miles, and uh, then uh, he went as far as uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and then I dropped him off at the airport or stopped the canoe by the airport, <laughs> and then did the rest of it solo. And then you you went from there. And then the next big town, I guess, would have been, uh, was it, it's it's on the border of, there's a college town there, and I can't remember the name of it. It's the Wisconsin, Minnesota border. You go through that town, too, because that's where it starts yeah, getting really I, wide. Yeah, I can't remember all the little towns. That's That's been so many years ago now. Uh, but, I mean, from time to time, I go back up there, and there were towns that I made friends in, and they've become lifelong friends. I'm thinking of Winona, Minnesota is what I'm thinking of. Winona, yeah, actually, they uh, make Winona canoes there, uh, Z-pack tents and uh, backpacks, and uh, cool town. A lot of people uh, like us, the outdoor adventure type. Uh, actually, the guys from the Winona canoe plant came over and picked me up and gave me a tour of the plant. Were you ever bored on this excursion? Uh, on the Mississippi River? Yeah. Well, no, in, no, in, no, in, no. Every, every day it's like, uh, you know, the, the beauty of being out there in the wilderness and, uh, you know, seeing the, the beavers come and slapping their tails in the morning, uh, cause you're in their spot and, uh, you know, just all the wildlife and stuff. No, never get bored of that. That's in fact, I, that's what I live for, man. Really? Did you run into any waterfowl hunters while you were doing this? I did. I happened to, since I came through in the fall, I ran into uh, lots of uh, duck hunters. Uh, you must be getting a phone call. River public access property. So, yeah, ran into lots. In fact, if you watch my video uh, on the Mississippi River trip, you'll see a little section where I visit with a hunter. Did Did you ever get nervous or scared on this? Is there any kind Because of, rivers are known for some pretty shady things, like in Memphis, Tennessee. Yeah, I generally made it a point not to camp in cities, uh, so I would uh, camp outside of cities. But, no, I never had a moment that I was concerned. Uh, I had more moments where I was elated. I'd be camping on the side of the river, and a guy would uh, yell down, Hey, bud, uh, what are you doing down there? It's like, well, paddling the Mississippi. He says, come on up to our deer camp, man, have a few beers. <laughs> so that was uh, more more often the circumstance. I slept in more uh people's camps and campers and stuff uh everyone wanted to you know become part of the story and uh, give me a beer and i generally took them up on it did you have any uh personal protection when you were on this did you have a pistol or bear mace or did you have anything in case things went sideways uh, oh yeah i mean i took some bear mace because up in the other uh, northern minnesota area you've got some grizzlies up in that section and my wife was real worried about that uh but uh, I didn't carry a weapon or anything. What about a cell phone? Did you have a cell phone? Uh, yeah, I had a cell phone. I had a satellite uh, communication device, and I had uh, VHF radio so I could talk to the boats on the river. 
We had a guy. Where was he? From? <laughs> where was he? He fished in uh, South America. Oh, mm-hmm. uh, the guy from um, yeah, good guy. And I um, can't think of the the guy that hunted with us. Yeah, sure. And he had a he has they have Wi Fi there, but it, it's only it, it's it's only enough bandwidth to basically make like a phone call if you had to. So he doesn't right. tell anybody that he has Wi Fi down there just in case he's got to use. Um, has to use it to get a phone call out for sinking ship or pirates hitting them or whatever. Well, now nowadays everyone all the all the adventures use the Garmin inReach. It's the standard device for satellite communication. It's a you know texting apparatus. Well, what did you uh when, when you're on this vaca- this vacation this this adventure down the Mississippi River? That's there's some serious boat traffic the further south you get. I guess from St. Louis on it becomes pretty boat traffic heavy. Is is that is that where it really changed the river? Yeah, uh, everyone as I was coming in, I actually knew one towboat captain, and everyone was warning me, uh, don't go through the industrial zone below St. Louis. And uh, yeah, there's about a nine mile stretch where there's um, they do a lot of reorganizing the the tow loads and stuff, and uh, a lot of industry in there. And uh, you know, I just put on a really uh, bright uh, safety vest and uh, I call ahead with the radio and just let, let all the captains know ahead of me that I'm coming through. And uh, uh, I found out if I would just talk to the boat traffic, uh, they would kind of call out ahead and say, Hey, there's going to be a a John or John boat or I've done it by John boat also, but there's going to be a canoe coming through. And uh, I never had any problems personally, got along real well with the towboat captains. So that so you get to St. Louis and it's to Memphis. Did you take? Did you go all the way to Venice, Louisiana, or did you cut off at New Orleans? No, no, I went way. I went all the way to the end, all the way down to the South Pass, uh, past Port Eads, and into the Gulf. That's got to be some rough stuff there. How big was your canoe? It was a seventeen foot aluminum craft, kind of the standard thing. Uh, it's it's a big area. the 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 river's really really wide right there uh, at mile zero, where the the three branches of the river split off to the different passes. Uh, and I, I would guess it's probably a mile and a half wide there. But um, I don't know. It's just something you kind of get used to spending that much time on big water, and uh, and you just stay over to the side, stay outside of the traffic lanes. And it's it, you said it's a mile and a half wide there. Uh, it might be wider. It's really, really wide right there where the that mile zero where the Southwest Pass, South and Southeast Passes all uh, leave, and that's about ten miles below uh, Venice. And and so I can I can't believe you can go that far south of there. So you were already into the, the you were basically in the salt water there. Then did you turn around and row back to Venice? Is that what you did? Uh, actually, the South Pass used to be really uh, a big sport fishing hub place, and I was when I did it, I was able to catch a ride back with a sport fisherman, and uh, he dropped me off there at the uh, boat ramp in Venice. And uh, I'd left a car uh, there in Venice at a hotel uh, a couple of months earlier when when I uh, headed out, so uh, I just got a ride up to my car. That's, that's that's amazing story right there. And that's not even the best story we got. This is the first part. It's just, that is an amazing adventure to go from the start of the Mississippi all the way to now. 
paddling down is not so bad because I'm assuming a lot of times you were just keeping with the current, basically, especially after you get uh, St. Paul. Yeah, you uh, the whole Mississippi River's got good current. I mean, it's it's uh, not unusual uh, to have a three four mile per hour current. Uh, but uh, you know, I, I'm I was a canoe racer uh, for many years. I don't know if y'all guys heard of the Texas Water Safari, but I've done that 17 times. So I've I've got a lot of experience uh, canoe racing also. Canoe racing? What like what do you do? How how what's, how's that work? Okay, well the the race I used to train for uh, is a uh, called the world's toughest uh, canoe race. It's the Texas Water Safari. It leaves San Mar San Marcos, Texas, and you go nonstop till you hit the the coast down near Sea uh, Drift, Texas, just just up the coast from Corpus Christi. So it's uh, uh, twenty four. I mean, excuse me, like forty eight hours. Uh, uh, first, the fastest time I did was a forty six hour in a six man boat. Um, but I did a, a, I've done it solo several times, mixed. But it's a, a just a really well known race if you're in the canoe uh, racing uh, world, and uh, just uh, in, I just have always enjoyed being competitive. So after you did all this, you decided, hey, you woke up one day and said, hey, I'm going to go to the Arctic Circle and do this. <laughs> it's uh, you know I have uh, a big old bucket list. Uh, of uh, kind of fun things I want to do. And uh, heading up to the Arctic was just uh, one of the many. And uh, I actually started thinking about it about three or four years ago. And then COVID hit and you couldn't get into the Arctic. Uh, uh, they just shut it down. And uh, But, yeah, the opportunity came up and uh, everything stars aligned where I could uh, uh, leave and head out because uh, I was planning on being gone up to three months. Now, where, when this Arctic adventure started, where did you put in for that at? Um, hardly anyone knows anything about the upper uh, Canadian Arctic zone. Even the Canadians didn't know about it when I was talking to them. Uh, but basically, it was uh, where Canada meets Alaska. Uh, there's a Mackenzie River comes through there, and uh, at the uh, where the uh, Mackenzie River uh, flows into the Arctic Ocean is a little town called Tuktoyuk, and uh, they just opened a road um, less than ten years ago. Uh, there's the Dempster Highway that leaves the Alcan Highway and goes for about 500 miles, and then there's another 150 mile highway from Inuvik all the way up to the Arctic Ocean. That's so 650 miles of some of the roughest gravel road you've ever driven in your life, but you can drive from Austin, Texas, 4,700 miles if you uh, have the gumption, and you can launch your boat right there at the boat ramp and tuck. And it, and so you drove from Austin to to this place, and then you put in basically, uh, it's, it, is it in Canada or is it right there in Alaska? It's, it's in Canada. It's uh, in the Northwest Territory. But you're right by Alaska. Uh, you're within, uh, you know, like Point Barrow and Prudhoe Bay. You're in, in that area, yeah. But I was probably um, maybe 30 miles uh, east of the Alaskan border. Okay. Now, how long did it take you to get there from, from Austin? Uh, I, I just, I had, I had 
driven most of that before. So I just kind of did a marathon drive. Uh, I, I made it up there in six days. If you can imagine that. That would be as much, that'd be a fun adventure to me just to drive that far. Was it gravel uh, roads? Yeah, the last? I, I, I uh, just flew until th- I got to the Dempster highway, uh, which I hadn't seen. And once I got on that gravel road, you're following the McKenzie river and the Peel river and you're uh, crossing the Arctic Circle while you're on that road. Uh, it, it was amazing. Talked to lots of fishermen that were uh, just kind of driving down the road and, uh, you know, running down to the McKenzie River and Peel and uh, fishing off there, catching Arctic grayling and all sorts of really cool fish. Now, opportunity to buy a gas station and buy a burrito like at Allsup's are probably few and far between up there, right? <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, the... I, I carried uh, 10 gallons of extra fuel in my boat, uh, and just about everyone you saw that was on the Dempster Highway had uh, you know extra spare tires and uh, extra fuel because, yeah, it's a long way between anything. That's what's amazing about the people that are, well, even the people that are up there now and the people that have lived there in the past is just how self-reliant they are. Uh, they have to be, but the other thing that uh, is there is everyone helps everyone. Right. Uh, you know, you might live in, in Austin and not know your neighbors, but, uh, when you're up there, you stop and help anyone that's in trouble. And, uh, yeah, I, I stopped a guy and helped a guy change a spare tire. And while I was helping him, three other cars stopped. Really? It's like West Texas. People stop to yeah. see, people stop to see if you need help. So you yeah. get up, you get up to the place you're going to put your John boat in. You have your extra supplies and you take off. Now, what is the temperature like? Because there's icebergs everywhere. Is it is it freezing weather? Is it does it get below freezing at night still, or is it warmed up? Yeah, I had I only had, during the period I was there, I only had one night uh, that it got below freezing, and I had some ice on my boat and stuff, but. Uh, you know, July is their hottest part of the season. It's kind of like it is here, the July 1st of August period. And uh, that's really um, not the time you can boat it because it takes a couple of months of heavy heat to uh, and, and heavy heat to them is 60 degrees. Yeah, uh, really a really warm day. So they consider the period to, to boat in the Arctic starting around the 1st of September. And so that's, so once you got in the water, you started going, how far to your first, from where you launch in, how far do you go till you stop the first day? Uh, I, I, I mean, I can travel. The furthest I've traveled in a day was 300 miles in a day, but uh, everything has to be optimal for, for something like that. A, a typical day for me would be a couple of hundred miles. Uh, the first day I, I came out, I was left tuck and I went straight into the Arctic Ocean. So it's it's a, a big ocean, uh, the potential for a pretty heavy uh, wave movement. And, and I did have relatively rough conditions. I was hoping to make a couple hundred miles the first day. And I think I made it 140 miles. And uh, I had like islands spotted where there would be good places to pull into protected water. So I, um, the, the wind had switched out to the Northwest. And so it was blowing the polar sea ice into the, uh, into the, uh, Beaufort sea. Uh, and, uh, so, you know, I, I, I camped that first night and, uh, found a, a really safe Harbor. And what I did is I just, uh, 
threw an anchor out and uh, I had a, a bare uh, fence that I put up at night. It uh, plugged in, uh, PVC plugged into the perimeter of my boat and I strung um, what would, you know, look, you'd use in Texas as a cattle fence, basically uh, with a, a electric fence that I dropped the ground into the salt water and hooked the fence up and I'd set up a tent and I just camped in my boat. So that was to keep the polar bears away. Polars and grizzlies, and uh, there's now some crossbreeds between the polars and grizzly uh, grizzlies called prizzlies and uh, <laughs> what are they like? There's there's two two terms. What are the, what do these crossbred uh, bears look like? Are they like brownish white? It's uh, sort of like some of the other uh, crossbreed things. Uh, they, uh, whether the mother's a grizzly or a, or a polar bear, uh, they have different looks to them oh, and they okay. have different names for them. Uh, so yeah, it, it looks like, a uh, the pictures I've seen, I didn't see any bears the whole time. Uh, the, but the pictures I saw there kind of looked like a grizzly, uh, with some white patches. So, so you put in by Herschel Island, is that close to where you put in at? Yeah. Uh, actually Herschel Island's on the, uh, west side of, uh, the Mackenzie River, and I was, you know, probably 70 miles, um, 100 miles uh, to the east of Herschel Island. Did you go, like, past the Langley Islands and the Kendall Island? I can't remember all the names of all those island sets. I went through past thousands of island sets. Cape but, da, uh, does Cape Dahusa sound correct? Sound like a place you'd go? No. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> no, it really doesn't sound uh, real familiar. I mean, the first uh, place I, uh, you know, I can't, I can't recall. There's Pierce, uh, Point Pierce, uh, Pierce Point uh, was where I was hoping to go to uh, the first day, and I ended up short of that. And uh, but uh, yeah, that that's where I ended up. the The first point is you're heading uh, east, uh, 140 miles east of Tuck is where I ended up the first night. Now you, so you kind of, I'm assuming you kind of have this itinerary in your head. Okay. I need to make it to here and then I need to make it to there by the next day. Is it, uh, is no, it, no, no, not at all. Not no, at all. It's, like, uh, I'm just going to go as far as it'll take me. Well, because it's, um, it's ocean, man. I mean, it's the crap that'll kill you. I'm in 34 degree water. And, uh, so no, you have to, uh, if you're going to survive things like this, you have to have kind of a safety plan. And so I had plans that if I had trailing seas, I'd go in up to two foot seas. And if I had head seas, I would limit it to a one foot head seas. So, uh, no, I, I made it a commitment to myself that, uh, you know, I would watch the weather forecast. And I had a friend of mine, I've done the tens of thousands of miles of sailing with working as my router. He's a licensed sea captain. And I would, uh, check with him, uh, each morning. Uh, and, uh, he would give me detailed forecasts and, and, uh, information like that. And then together he and I would make uh, a decision what was going to happen the next day. How, how far off the coast did you go? Was you a hundred yards off a half mile, three miles? Um, it, you know, if you want to get this done in any reasonable distance, because there's huge uh, bay-looking things there, there were sometimes I was 50 to 70 miles offshore. Oh my god! And uh, where I was running, you know, 
um, a 160 mile, uh, you know, crossing. So yeah, I, I, um, you have to be able to get it in your head that in 34 degree water, it doesn't matter if you're a half mile offshore or 50 miles offshore, you don't want to go into water. Right. No, you're dead. So, I mean, yeah. you know, you're thinking I'm not going to make that. I'm not going to make it to the bank either way. If I fall in, if I well, go in, I go in. No, I had planned to go in. I'd actually, uh, the winter before I swim every day in January and February, I've got a pool at the house. Uh, so I wanted to make sure I can handle going into ice water. And I actually put a boarding ladder on the back of my John boat. And then I had spare changes of clothes. So, uh, if I went in, I wasn't going to die. I was going to survive. Uh, my thought was more that if I lost my boat, if it sunk or came apart or something like that, uh, I would still, you know, have, you know, do an emergency call out. And uh, one of the things we didn't mention is in preparation for this trip, I had uh, gotten in communication with Nordreg, which is their uh, Canadian Coast Guard, and with the Arctic Communication Center. And so they had a description of my boat and everything. They were tracking my uh, inReach tracker, so they they knew where I was at every moment. And I had to do a call in every day to them. Call in, it was a text in. I would just tell them what the weather conditions were like where I was, and um, you know, let them know I was you know all's well and what my plan was for the next day. So. And in each town I got into, I would call them and, you know, make sure that we were all cool. There's some pretty funny conversations occurred. <laughs> well, well, tell us about the towns you go into, because I'm assuming those people are not really up with Western culture. So they liked your money, uh, I bet, though. <laughs> uh, you'd assume wrong. It's pretty funny. You walk into the average house there. What did you see? You see a big old big screen TV with a sports game on or. Uh, I had lots of funny instances, uh, uh, but the first, it is rustic and rural and, uh, the towns in the Northwest territory are, uh, dominated by, uh, you know, local Indian tribes, uh, segmented a little bit out from what you see further East, uh, with, and you see the, the pure Inuit, uh, people, the, what we probably, probably what most people know is an Eskimo, uh, but, uh, yeah, they, they're, they're now that you would call them Inuits, but uh, no, I had lots of, uh, really good times with them. And, uh, I think because to, to have a good mental mindset living up there, you gotta be an outdoorsman. You gotta be an adventurer. If you're a woman, you gotta be tough. You gotta be, you know, used to eating, uh, and preparing meat that the men hunted and, and they really do live off the. Uh, off what they hunt, whether it's belugas or, uh, you know, uh, caribou or uh, muskox. Uh, these guys are, are real sportsmen. And because of that, I hit it off. We, we just uh, always had a, a fun time visiting everywhere I went. So well, they speak English? Yeah, they, they all watch, you know. Uh, I was in one little town and uh, this guy was, I was told, yeah, he's the guy who can forge steel. And I said, well, is this like a tradition passed down uh, through your family or something? And he goes, oh, no, I watch it on YouTube, uh, you know, Forge Steel or something. <laughs> it's like, no, they, they all have, uh, they have kind of slow internet. They can't send uh, videos. 
just because their internet's real slow. But they do have um, uh, televisions, and they use DirecTV. The the funny thing about the DirecTV there is their antennas point sideways. For them to hit the ge- you know where our antennas point up, mm-hmm. for them to hit the geosynchronous uh, uh, satellites over the equator, they have to point straight across the horizon. It's it, it's just weird being that far north. Uh, things are different. The magnetic pole is different up there. You know, here compasses work real good. Up there, the magnetic poles are turning the magnetic field, so your compasses don't work very well. Yeah, because everything ends up being what south, it, further north you go, right? Well, what happens if you remember a magnet from maybe uh, high school or middle school science, uh, where at the end of the magnet, the magnetic field makes a big turn down into the top. Same thing happens in the North Pole. Uh, when I was looking and I brought my drones to do some drone imaging while I was up there and they recommend you not fly a drone that close to the magnetic pole because the magnetic field uh, is uh, not horizontal there. It becomes more vertical. I've seen where the North Pole has moved to a bunch lately. Really? Yep. Last well, it's going to switch. Yeah, it actually uh, back in the 1700s was uh, down about where I was uh, near, near Joe Haven and uh, it's uh, been moving for the last several hundred years, but over the last seven years, it's moving uh, towards Siberia at about 50 miles per year. And it's actually the uh, magnetic pole is on the Siberian side of the uh, north, the physical North Pole now. And, and that's what allowed me to fly my drones up there without an issue. But I mean, it's got to it's got to go back to what South Pole dominant. It doesn't it do that every couple thousand years and like we're way overdue? <laughs> well, it's the I did a lot of research into that. Uh, we know that the magnetic pole has uh, flipped somewhere between seven to twelve times. It doesn't happen often, uh, but it has to do with uh, you know the amount of iron inside the Earth and where it's located and how it moves around. So there's a big old lump of, of iron in the magma of the Earth that's uh, kind of moving over to Siberia right now. All right, let's talk food now. As a fat boy that loves okay. food, what did what's the weirdest thing that you ate on this trip? Well, uh, survival wise, I brought dehydrated foods, and I had I carried about a month and a half's worth of uh, you know Mountain Home standard backpacker uh, food, and then uh, uh, I bought you know stuff at stores. Uh, you know, I'd buy canned meats and cookies and fruit and stuff like that uh, and uh, like granola bars and stuff to eat during the day uh, but uh, I, I got to invited to have a lot of meals with family so I had um, uh, caribou uh, stir-fried caribou at one family's house uh, I got to eat arctic char, which is kind of the the fish that everyone loves up there. And you can only get it kind of in the central Arctic. And uh, then when I was in uh, Politak, uh, I wanted to taste the dried fish that they eat as prepared by the Inuit. And uh, this lady goes, well, go over to that blue house right there. The the guy there will give you some dried fish. And... uh, so I'll start this. So the first time I went into a town where I needed to get some fuel, 
I said, do you have a restroom? He goes, no, you just walk up to a house and you tell them you need to use a restroom. I said, like, any, any house. Any, pick but, a house. Yeah, just any house. Just knock on the door and say, hey, I, I need to use a restroom. And and it, it worked like that. And uh, I needed some water. I knocked on a house and said, hey, I need to get some water. Oh, you know, you're traveling through. But I think it comes from the history of living around polar bears and stuff. And if you see a polar bear, you don't want that door to be locked. Mm-hmm. So uh, if the kids are going to school and they see a polar bear, they can go up to the nearest house and, and go in. But uh, it, it has to do with that helping each other out. But so I walked in, walked up to this door, and the guy says, "So who's giving away my fish?" And I told her, well, "It was Lily over there at the North Store." And uh, and he says, "Well, come on in." And I had coffee with him and his wife, and they gave me five pounds of dried fish to take with me in the boat. So each morning I'd fire up some coffee and throw some dried uh, fish in my mouth. And it, that fish would just melt in my mouth as it was just wonderful. I, I ate that for days and days. So did you have any of the fermented fish? Uh, not familiar with the term fermented fish. Everything that I saw up there, they would uh, take it and they would like <clears throat> do the filet and then they would leave the skin on it, and they just cut it, uh, uh, just cross-cut it down the, the fish. And then they would uh, they'd either do one of two things. They would just take it in their house and have that. Almost all the houses had racks on the ceiling, like right in their living room. There'd be fish hanging and drying. And some of them would take the uh, fish and uh, drape it over racks in a uh, smokehouse, and they would smoke it for a few days to more quickly dry it. But um, yeah, I I, I wasn't um, I, I never had fermented fish. I had um, muskox, uh, really tough meat. They they eat it fairly highly seasoned, and they generally grind it. Uh, like I said caribou. Uh, what else did I have? I had beluga whale. They generally eat that raw. And they uh, they cut it into like little chunks, uh, sort of like we would you go to Louisiana and get cracklings. It was like eating raw cracklings. It was it was, was like it maybe eating a raw stick of butter. <laughs> was it <laughs> but difficult it, it to get down? It, do I? Was it difficult to get down? No, it actually tasted kind of good, sort of like eating cracklings, but it was raw. But uh, now they uh, it, it was. It was good. I didn't notice, uh, but I I eat most anything. <laughs> Did you have any seal oil while you were there? No, uh, I didn't. I know that they save seal oil, and uh, but they sealing killing seals generally happens during the winter, and uh, so now I I saw. I actually got invited to get a wedding and the groom was wearing a, a seal coat that he had uh, killed the seal and made a kind of a vest out of it. Uh, but no, didn't get, didn't get to do seal oil or, uh, I didn't have any seal. How did you get invited to a wedding? <laughs> um, let's see. So, um, uh, this is kind of later in the story, but, uh, I met, uh, three guys that were helping me and uh, three Inuit guys and they're big hunters and fishermen and everything. We really hit it off and we'd spent a lot of time together while I was stuck in this town. And we'll get into this story, the, the bulk of the story, but uh, we just hit it off. And he says, Hey, I'm getting married. Uh, you know, come to the wedding. 
And, uh, you know, I was quite honored. And so I got to go to the wedding and the reception and, and all. And I was expecting to see all sorts of, you know, Inuit stuff. No, it was just like going to a wedding here. Really? It was it was identical. Uh, you know, they toss a bouquet and, uh, you know, did, did all the things you'd see at a wedding here. I, I took lots of pictures while I was at the wedding. And uh, I, uh, I look forward to, to sharing those uh, maybe in a book and videos and stuff someday. Now, everybody I know that's spending time up north has told me that the bathing is not very doesn't happen very frequent up there. Did you notice that? Um, no, not really. Uh, the um, they they've got all the conveniences that you and I have, uh, and uh, yeah, there's a whole lot of misconceptions I brought up there with me, just just like stuff like that. And uh, but I stayed in their homes now. It, it does get, you know, 60 below zero there. And so they do have to have lots of, um, you know, special provisions for this extremely cold weather. So they have a tank inside their home, typically uh, kind of it's either under in a they, they have their house sectioned or maybe in the central portion of the house behind some walls. But they have a tank for holding fresh water. They have a tank for holding sewage. Uh, you know, inside their house so it doesn't freeze. And typically a couple of times a week, a truck comes by, pumps out sewage and puts in fresh water. So, you know, they've got, uh, they, and they heat their houses um, with diesel fuel and with uh, a furnace that uh, circulates uh, uh, a, a heat through heating pipes uh, in their house. And uh, they uh, have access to an ample supply of hot water. So uh, when you walk in their homes, it looks just like you're walking into a home here. And, um, you know, they, uh, they had all the, they, they seem clean to me. I showered in some of the homes. It's just crazy how they figured out how to live in such, uh, frigid conditions. What's the coldest that you saw it when you were on your trip? In the, in the high twenties, but I was there during the, in the, in the right. summer, and uh, the average day there for me was, um, if it was a hazy day, it'd be 39 at night and 41 in the afternoon. Uh, I, I had temperatures go as high on a sunny day as uh, almost 60 degrees. And then on a, the coldest night was, you know, in the upper 20s. So uh, it, it was, you know, it, it was uh, actually what I, I like is really comfortable to me running Running around in thirty to fifty degree weather is is my my spot where I perform well. So it wasn't it wasn't too terribly uncomfortable for you. You were usually in your comfort zone as far as weather goes. Uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, I shared one picture with y'all where I'm out in some sea ice and it's real hazy. And yeah, y'all spent time in small boats. Uh, when you're running, you know, twenty five thirty miles an hour over 34 degree water, it's cold, it's bitching cold. And you got every piece of clothing you, you, uh, own, uh, on, but, uh, so it was frigid when I was moving in the boat and I was over the really cold water, but you know, on land, no, it's the, it's the time of year that they, um, you know, really get out. And there, as I entered the uh, Arctic going up to tuck, I saw lots of Inuit uh, out picking berries. Mm -hmm. So, uh, they're competing with the bears getting ready for winter. 
How long is their summer? I mean, you got a couple of days here and there, and that's basically the extent of their three months. Their warm season. It, it's they got about four months uh, of you know what we'd call just pretty active summer to them, and uh, by by mid October, the just like fall here, it's when they start seeing their cold fronts come in, and uh, but their their uh, ice doesn't get where they can like drive on the ice uh till you know like december uh november december but by february the the sea ice in front of these villages will get up to nine foot thick wow which is it's hard to imagine uh one of the guys i met along the way um uh was a championship uh snowmobiler and he was he had uh, ice cleats into his skids and uh, yeah, I said, well, where do y'all do your races? He said, oh, right here in front of my house, right up <laughs> there in the ocean. And, and I had this misconception that they traveled by kayak and boat. They, they really don't travel by kayak and boat. Uh, they, they travel by snowmobile, man. Yeah. They, uh, they'll, they'll go hundreds of miles. I'd see these fishing camps or which I thought were fishing camps, you know, a hundred miles from a town. Oh, those were hunting camps that they drove their snowmobiles to. It is amazing. Well, did you see the Northern Lights all every night? Uh, well, no, I didn't see light. I mean, I didn't see darkness. <laughs> yeah. So oh, I, I was up there during the all time. Uh, yeah. You know, when it was light all the time, uh, I, I, when I got up to Tuck, it was eleven o'clock at night, and the, the, the sun was way up in the sky, and uh, it would get about to the horizon. And just not set and just kind of run across the northern sky. And then at like two thirty in the morning, it was back pretty darn bright again. Uh it was it was weird. Jeez. Imagine the stars you could see up there when it's dark though. Well, that would be amazing. Probably uh, the sun doesn't come yeah, up. Yeah, talking to those guys, they said when a cold front would come through and it when it gets super cold, I'm talking like negative sixty, the the air can't hold humidity. So it just goes down to like 0% humidity. And they said it's like you can reach out and grab the stars. Uh, uh, I, I, I talked to a lot of the, the, the young guys, the guys in the 30s that are active hunters and sportsmen and fishermen. And they wouldn't trade living up there for the world. They said, Ben, we got more game than you can imagine. They, they love to hunt. They love to fish. Uh, so how do you handle running at 60 miles an hour on a snowmobile? I said, we just got the right clothes, man. So, well, don't you get frostbite? Oh, yeah, yeah. We get frostbite every year. <laughs> so most of them have like cars right under the bottom of their eyes uh, where, you know, the uh, cold air, you can't cover that part of your face. And so they have scarring there. It, it's, it's just amazing that they are willing to put up with that. But it's what it's all they know. Mm-hmm. But it's just crazy that they were, they've been living this way forever. Like before, before modern clothing, before we figured out how to be comfortable and survive in, in these sort of conditions, they just, they've just figured it out. Uh, yeah, I've done a lot of research in the history. So the first people that came over, which we call the American Indian or the Canadian Indian, uh, they call themselves the first nation. So they came over. And then there was a second movement of humans into our uh, North American continent, and that was the Inuit. And uh, the uh, they, so they came at a later date. 
and they got down to the tree line and they picked up the resistance of the Indians that were living below the tree line. So these guys just got stuck above the tree line and uh, the Indians that live there called them Eskimo and Eskimo actually means in the Indian language, people that, uh, people that eat raw meat. Mm. So it was a derogatory name that the Indians gave the people above the tree line, the people that eat raw meat. And, uh, they call themselves the Inuit and Inuit in the Inuit language means, uh, the people, and it can also be translated to the people of snow. So that's why they call themselves the Inuit is they're the people of snow. And then the people below it are, are Indians. So that's, and, uh, that's interesting that Eskimo is actually, it was the native Americans that gave us this racist term. Not, not the, not the, <laughs> not the white guys. It was, it was the, the racist ass native Americans, just so that we're clear. Yeah, that is exactly it. And then, they uh, they were just as cruel as uh, other people in the world. They uh, slaughtered uh, uh, Eskimos, and uh, uh, they they needed someone to look down upon, and they chose the Eskimos. <laughs> and uh, so uh, it, it was pretty horrible. Uh, the town of Kukluktuk, a big part of its history is they uh, uh, called the Coppermine River the Bloody River, and a French explorer came in with an Indian guide, and the Indian guides uh, saw some uh, Inuits camping on the river, and he went down that night and slaughtered 14 of them the on the is. river. That's the way That's the world it. was back then, though. It was conquered or be conquered. Uh, it's the way it is now. It's yes. tribal. Yep, that's right. But, uh, it's, uh, but, and there's still, you know, like residual racism in almost all society. There is a residual racism between the Indian and the Inuit even today, it's much moderated by, uh, you know, the new society that we have now and communication. And uh, there was a, there's like the most further north Inuit uh, towns uh, are there because um, the uh, French Canadians didn't want them in Quebec anymore. So guess what they did? Moved them out. They moved them up way up into the Arctic. Uh, and as we moved our Indians out west, they moved theirs north. And uh, they did it for another reason, is the the Russians and the Chinese were trying to move in on that territory and claim it for Russia and China. And the uh, Canadian government used the Indian uh, to hang on to that territory, or the Eskimo, uh, the, the Inuit. And uh, so there's, there's a lot of bizarre history associated with uh, – that area. And I found that intriguing. I probably did over 150 interviews talking to, to, uh, Inuit uh, about, you know, what they do. And I was very likely to be, uh, accepted by them. Um, when I was in Cambridge Bay, uh, they had had an athlete from Cambridge Bay win, uh, one of the wrestling classes in the Canadian summer games. And they had a big celebration for him. And I, I uh, was invited to this celebration for, for just locals and uh, they had a big dinner and uh, so I had dinner with them and, and all that. And they uh, first to start off, they did the drum dance and, you know, I thought that was a tourist thing and no, they, they actually do, can, they do drum dance at their own celebrations to kind of hang on to the language and the, and the story. And 
And uh, just by pure chance, uh, like four nights later, I was invited by a couple to stay at their house. And it was the house of the drum dancers. Really? So I got to I got to learn. I said, you know, tell me about the story. I I talked to two young girls that were sitting across the table from me. They didn't know the native language enough to know what the story meant. But these uh, people told me about this song, and they, they didn't have a written language, uh, and so they used these drum dances to tell the history. Was, I felt really honored to be uh, accepted by these people. That's crazy. They didn't have a written language, so they used drum beat as a way of communicating. And to tell a story. And, and tell uh, a story. They, uh, up until COVID, uh, they would have like regional get-togethers, and they would have competitions on uh, retelling the story. It was really, uh, really, uh, but COVID, just like there, changed a lot of stuff. It, it really did. What were their feelings on COVID? Were they petrified of this, or were they? Um, they uh, smoking is really uh, a big deal up there. I'd probably say ninety percent of the people smoke. So because of that, that there's you know there's a lot of associated uh, lung diseases and stuff. So yeah, they did have some deaths associated with COVID. Uh, they. Um, but just, it, it's just about parallels us. They had a couple of tough years, and uh, you know, some are vaccinated, some aren't. But uh, they pretty much passed it now. Because I went to St. Lucia the year after we went to St. Lucia last October for our ten. It's yeah. it's a it's an island. But anyway, they are the the population there is heavy Creole. And mm-hmm. they are very, very superstitious about things like this. So the whole island was on pins and needles, the way because they were they were scared to death that this was something that was going to wipe out uh, the human race. So I didn't know how what what the Eskimo attitude was towards COVID. They were they were concerned about it, and um, so in in the nineteen nineties. There was a huge movement by the Inuit population, and the government of Canada created a new territory called, new territory called uh, Nunavut. They, mm-hmm. sep- they separated it out. So they've got a territory that's only been in existence for, you know, uh, 30-something years, and, uh, and it is run by the Inuit. In the Inuit, when COVID hit, they just stopped travel. You were not allowed to pull into the harbor of those towns. So yeah, they were terrified. But uh, like like the rest of us, uh, they started realizing that it was only taking out, you know, the the really sick and you know stuff like that, the older people. And uh, it's it's. Well, we lost you. Well, Are you back? Yes, sir. Okay, so uh, let's get back. Let's get. I mean, let's tell a little story of the boat trip. Go ahead. Okay, so I get to this 140 miles the first night, and I uh, so I'm I'm really excited. I'm in the Arctic. I mean, I was just like so excited. I I woke up with a smile that next morning. I couldn't believe it was a Texan in the Arctic, and uh, so I pulled out uh, from the little harbor I was in. And the first thing I saw were huge icebergs. I think I sent you some of the pictures of that. And they're dark blue. They're, you know, these, they're freshwater. They've come off of a glacier. 
And then uh, I went, I had a long crossing to do between two points. So I'm kind of maybe 30 miles from shore and it was really overcast and uh, hazy, foggy. And there was like rainbows all in the, in the fog. And I'm (laughs) running along about 20 miles an hour. And I was like, what the hell is that? And I came up on sea ice and uh, it was as far as I could see, which wasn't very far. I could only see like a hundred mile or, I mean, a couple hundred yards, 200 yards into it. So I thought, I wonder how big this is. So I went south and I went south for almost five miles and it was still sea ice all the way. So I turned around. I said, you know, the wind had been blowing out of the northwest the day before, like I was telling you. So I thought, well, maybe the ice is blown south, so I'll go north. So I went north for about 10 miles, and it was still sea ice as far as I could uh, see. So I got, I sat down and just kind of stopped and parked my boat. It was really calm at that time. And I was sitting there on my inReach, uh, sending a message to my router just to see if he had, could see the ice on the satellite and give me some directions. And I'm sitting there typing into it, and it would look. It felt as if a, a large blue suburban exited the water four feet from my boat to my right hand side. It was a huge bowfin whale. They're about forty foot long whales, and uh, he just raised up about. I mean, the top of his head was maybe six, seven feet in the air. And his eyeball was four feet from me, and he just just stared at me. It was I've got goosebumps right now <laughs> just thinking about it. And he kind of he could have easily taken me out, but after looking at me, I just I guess solving his curiosity, the whale just slid back in the water backwards and swam away. That's crazy. That, that, was, that was on my second day in the Arctic. I saw icebergs. I saw sea ice. And I had this huge freaking whale pull up right beside me and stare at me. Uh, so, man, what a what an indoctrination on your second day in the Arctic. It, it was beyond belief. Now, how many days total were you there? How many days total did this trip from the time you put in to the time you got to your final spot? Well, I it was a round trip. So I left Tuck and I got back to Tuck uh, almost exactly a month later. Now I'm looking at something on Garmin and this is from your trip. How did this, cause there's different bull there. So there's a dot and then there's a line and then there's another dot. Is that when you would check in or how does this, how does this Garmin thing uh, that I'm looking at work? Or do you have I any had idea? That actually uh, updating every two minutes okay. and you, you will, the closer you zoom in, the dots get closer and closer together. And, uh, and okay. as you move out, they get further and further apart, but they're actually they they knew where I was updated every two minutes uh, as I was moving across. And uh, so I left there that, you know, got through the ice. My router said, Robert, this ice appears uh, broken and just start heading through it. So I've got some great video while I'm moving through it. And uh, a mighty white Marine out of Arkansas, they're a huge John boat dealer. About a week before I left, he says, Robert, you need a breakaway on the back of your boat. And I, I thought I knew a lot about John Boats. And he said, I, I, I don't know what a breakaway is. And he <laughs> said, well, you know, you've got a um, – I mean, y'all are duck hunters. Y'all probably know about breakaways. But it allows the uh, motor to tip up without having to 
uh, run the hydraulic cylinder, which can cause damage to your boat. So guess what? They, Vance uh, sent me a free breakaway uh, in association with Mighty White Marine. And uh, so as I was going through that ice, my motor could tilt up as I drive over ice. And I ended up spending about oh, 45 minutes uh, just kind of weaving my way uh, through this sea ice, looking for cracks in it. And one time I pushed my bow up against it and just gave it some gas and pushed the sea ice over. And uh, I had a lot of people say, Robert, weren't you just scared to death out there by yourself, 4,000 miles from home? I said, no, I was actually laughing. <laughs> it was so funny. I said, I cannot believe I am a Texan sitting in the middle of the Arctic pushing sea ice for the bow of my John boat. <laughs> it was just just everything I had ever hoped it would be. It was really exciting. I'd have been thinking about the Titanic the whole time. That's what I would have been thinking about. <laughs> uh, I don't know. That never crossed my mind. Uh, it, so you never uh, guess, were you um, never were worried at all just about uh, something something terrible going on. You just kind of had this free free mind and let's just enjoy this ride and enjoy the beauty while it's here. I I spent years and years. I've got over thirty thousand miles of offshore experience in sailboats. I worked on commercial uh, boats, and uh, so I'm I'm not just a guy that went up there and uh, you know hold it currently hold the Guinness World Record for the longest John boat trip and. You know, so I, I'm not a just a beginner. I'm, I built a boat uh, that, you know, could handle, uh, you know, braking and, you know, had huge bilge pumps, two huge bilge pumps in it. And and I had, uh, you know, lots of, you know, abandoned ship bag and I, I was prepared. And in every case, uh, you know, I did have troubles during the trip and had some boat damage and, you uh, but in every case, I always had a, a plan. You know, uh, there, there was a night when after I uh, my boat had, um, had sustained some pretty critical damage uh, that my pumps were pretty much running all night long. And uh, uh, I never was, you know, thought it was going to be, you know, deadly or anything. I, I always had an alternative I could do, but uh, I, I wasn't you know, crazy. It wasn't a death <laughs> wish or anything. It was a life wish, man. I, I The death wish is those people that sit on their easy chairs and the uh, life wish is uh, the guys that crawl or crawl in their boat on a 15 degree morning and go duck hunting, you know, or, or getting a drive to the Arctic. So, you know, I had a life wish. Now, how did you, how did you sustain damage to your boat? You said it was during the middle of the night. No, no. So, uh, now, this was a huge part of the story. There's, if you uh, look up uh, Canadian Broadcast Corporation, they did a really nice article on my trip. And uh, what happened was, you know, I had to go 650 miles up the one of the roughest roads in America, or actually in the world. That So uh, I sustained, in fact, I was talking with Mid-America Trailer yesterday. They're going to do some warranty work on my trailer. I, I broke uh, five wells on my trailer. And uh, just because you're bouncing down that road and possibly damaged my boat there. Uh, I bought a really good boat, really good brand of boat, but I was punishing this thing at a level that had been never punished. And then, you know, uh, they're designed to maybe go jump some stumps when you're duck hunting, uh, but they weren't designed to go across ocean. And I was was going a 
over a thousand miles one way and 18 inch seas. So somewhere along the way, I started shaking the internal frame of the boat apart and the center uh, where they weld the two halves together started ripping. So a thousand miles into my trip, I was a thousand miles east of uh, where I launched. I, I pulled into that town, Cambridge Bay, and I was sleeping and I noticed my bilge pump went off and uh, it just never went off. So I figured I had a crack and I'd crack something and it was leaking. And uh, so I got a local to haul me out. And uh, yeah, there was an 18 inch crack in my boat mm. and uh, it was um, it concerned me. And, uh, and I knew it was probably going to be the end of my journey east. I'd hoped to go another thousand miles east. And uh, so I worked with some locals and we um, uh, actually there's a little welding place there and a machine shop and lots of really good people. And they uh, helped me obtain some metal to do an outside overlay. Unfortunately, they, they had run out of all of their inert gas to do uh, aluminum welding. So I had to uh, epoxy this piece of metal over the uh, tear. And in um, my heart of hearts, I knew there was probably some internal structural damage. But so I, I left there and was going to head back to Tuck. I was a thousand miles from where I launched my boat. And I made it about um, in really rough water. I made it about uh, 150 miles that first day with the, my patch. Sometime during the day, the patch came off. And that night, now my pumps were going off like every six or seven minutes and pumping for a long time. And I knew that I was in a pretty critical situation where I could lose my boat. I didn't think I'd lose my life. I could always, like, I had a 150-mile run across the Coronation Gulf. A lot of it was open where I was 20 miles or more from shore, but I figured I could get to a shore and beach the boat and uh, attempt to repair in a worst case scenario, or I could call for rescue. Uh, I'd, I'd spent money and bought a $100,000 rescue policy where they would send someone out for me if I really got in trouble. And uh, But I made it into Cutlatuck, in, into this little town. So I made it 340 miles with this huge tear. And uh, I'd met this young guy and uh, named Miles Pedersen, and um, we had talked when I first came there because of a weather situation on the way over. And Miles comes down and says, uh, hey, Robert, what's going on? Are you OK? And I said, no, not not OK at all. Uh, you know, I got problems with my boat. And he uh, this, this is a pure Inuit guy. He grew up there uh, three generations that I, I knew of Inuit that I got to meet. And he pu- pulls his four wheeler up there. We drag my boat on. And water is just pouring out of the center of my hull. And uh, we climbed up under there. There was a the crack had grown to forty five inches. Wow! So I mean, huge crack. And uh, old Miles goes, uh, "Hey, Robert, uh, I can fix this for you." I said, "Like uh, you can fix it." And he goes, "Yeah, I can fix it. You just got to trust me." And uh, I said. What what do you think we're going to need to fix it? Oh, he says, we're going to have to take it all apart. You know, we're going to have to pull all your tanks. We're going to have to pull your motor. We're going to have to pull all your electronics. We're going to have to drill out all the rivets. We're going to have to pull your floor. And 
And I said, well, you know, this is going to take days. He says, oh, no, we'll have that all done this afternoon. What? So, uh, yeah. So about four Inuit buddies of his showed up with drills and stuff, and he had a shop, and they were, there was, I think, 1.3 of them inside the boat drilling rivets and uh, pulling stuff. So we pulled it all apart and found that basically every weld in the inside of my boat had broken. So the floor was disconnected. I mean, the bottom was disconnected from the framework. And uh, so um, he called his boss at the city and he was on a uh, on a journeyman program. He was first year into a journeyman program for doing um, uh, large, large equipment repair. And part of it included welding. And he had some welding classes. And he uh, this the his boss that worked at the city offices and in Kuklatuk, we're talking a, a little Inuit town of 1,300 people, said, yeah, bring it over to the city place. Uh, his instructor that taught the welding came over and said, Miles is really good. And his boss uh, spoke very highly of him. And uh, so we lifted the motor off. They had, they had the floor out and everything. We lifted the motor off and uh, uh, started the repair, man. And, and did they have it done that afternoon, like he said? Oh, no, no, it, I mean, they, he had it all apart that right. afternoon. It took three more days to uh, – we had to go to the dump, the city dump and pull metal off of other John boats, scrap metal. Not John boats, they were V-bottoms. But we pulled scrap metal off boats. And uh, uh, Miles had a 252 Miller, really nice uh, spool gun welder, uh, inert gas welder. It's a it's a spool gun MIG, and uh, he uh, put it all back together. Uh, he, he used uh, three and a half pounds of uh, spool gun, uh, uh, you know, welding material to put it all back together. And uh, and they actually took a keel off of another boat, trimmed it, and pulled a secondary keel over the top of uh, the uh, broken section. And welded that in place. So he made the boat better than it was when I started. Yeah. And uh, so uh, it allowed me to, uh, you know, make it make it back to my car. What would have happened if you hadn't met this guy? He's been stuck. Uh, I was thinking about that. I'd have probably had to have um, uh, left my boat there, and uh, you know, maybe try to get permission from the Canadian government to sell it to someone saw my motor and then just fly back to my car and drive home without a boat. Why would you have to have uh, their Canadian government's permission? Say, say that again. Why would the Canadian government? Oh, have oh, to- uh, because uh, when you come into the, uh, when you come into the country, they don't want you uh, helping people avoid taxes and stuff. So I had to sign a little document that uh, I would bring my boat back to the United States. So it's just uh, you'd become a a seller of a boat, and you'd have to you know pay the taxes and all that kind of stuff. Let me let me ask you this: You may not want to tell us this. How much did it cost to get your repairs done on your boat? Nothing. Wow, good people up there. What now? Now, <laughs> my my next question is going to be because people are going to ask this. They're going to say, "Why didn't you ask him that? How much does an adventure like this run you?" Oh, uh, it ran a whole lot more than I thought. Uh, the, uh, so I, I, I spent about, uh, what I spent like 15,000 on the boat. And then 
just the drive up there, I'd probably dropped uh, five grand on fuel. Wow. I mean, that, the the gas in Canada, I, I went up through Saskatchewan, through the Dakotas, and I kind of crossed Canada. Didn't do that on the way back because Canadian gas is stupid expensive. And uh, I was paying, when I got up in the Northwest Territory, I was paying close to $10 a gallon for fuel. And uh, with that Nissan Pathfinder pulling that boat, I was only getting like 13 miles a gallon. And uh, so I spent a lot. And the first time I filled up my boat, uh, my boat would hold uh, almost 100 gallons of fuel. I dropped uh, close to 500 bucks to fill it up with gas when I left Tuck. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it it's not cheap. And hotel rooms are up there three hundred dollars a night per person wow and uh so i slept in my car and i when i'd come into towns i didn't go stay in hotels i i slept in my boat and uh uh first time i pulled into kuklatuk i did at a river that kind of comes into town i was sleeping in my boat in the middle of the river and about seven o'clock in the morning i hear this roaring jet sound and uh it's a uh seaplane landing right beside me i mean they landed and uh, so the guy takes the seaplane and he comes around me and i looked out of my tent out of the back of my boat he goes get the hell out of my runway <laughs> <laughs> i had parked my boat right in the middle of the seaplane runway it was pretty funny <sighs> and i went over and visited with the guy but uh yeah those are the things you don't think about running into uh, on lake travis or, oh, yeah. uh, or the chapalaya <laughs> yeah you imagine, imagine hitting your credit card with them little deals. I can't even get my credit card to work in the city without them calling to make sure that somebody hadn't been stolen. Are you using your your credit card in the Arctic Circle for $750? <laughs> uh, yes, I am. I need yeah, fuel. I, uh, I contacted the two credit card companies that uh, I was going to use and let them know I'd be traveling up there. And uh, I actually called every, every place, uh, every town to make sure that I would be able to use my credit cards and I called every one of the towns and made sure that they would have fuel. I mean, cause they only get resupplies up there one time a year. So they have a, it's typically in September, a big ship uh, that carries barges with it uh, comes into a town and they get their fuel for that year on that delivery. <laughs> so, uh, and sometimes they run out. So I had to make sure that, they had gasoline, so when I pulled into a town, I could I could refuel. That is nuts. Now I'm going to ask you about your John boat. I don't know much about John boats other than the ones we've owned, and they've been eight or ten or twelve footers that are. How big? Mm. How big is your John boat now? Uh, it's a sixteen foot long, fifty six inch wide. Uh, there, there's a whole lot going into this trip. There's a reason why no one's ever tried to do this before. Uh, with a boat with outboard motors. Uh, the the reason is is uh, the distance between the towns. I mean, the closest towns were 250 miles apart. And then if you really wanted to, and a, the towns were way out of the way. So if you're going to do it most efficiently, you'd need to be able to run about 700 miles uh, without refueling. And to run 700 miles, I would want at least 30% or, or close to 30% safety uh, if I run into big seas or something. So I decided that I needed a boat that was capable of running a thousand miles without refueling. So, um, 
And then I needed a boat that was wide enough that I could load all of that gas into it and still have a place I could sleep. So I, um, that's how I came up with a 1656. I could have uh, 12 gallon tanks lining just, there were six tanks, three on each side, lining the inside of my boat is a wide open boat just had a seat in the uh, in the back and a very small bow cap and uh i i slept between the tanks at night and then i had i carried another 20 gallons and jugs behind the back seat and um so um yeah that's kind of how i ended up with that boat and i did a bunch of research i when I set the Guinness World Record, I was on a 14-foot boat with pretty low sides. It was a tracker, tracker grizzly, and I researched Express and Well-Built and G3 and you know all, all the different boats. And I wanted one with re- extremely high sides. I wanted all welded, uh, you know, t- tall transom, and that's how I ended up with the Well-Built um, 1656. Uh, good heavy-duty boat. Uh, unfortunately the dealer I purchased it from, uh, didn't tell me that they offered ice skids as an option. Didn't <laughs> tell me that they offered, uh, extra heavy duty gunnels. And, uh, the cool thing is, is when I started having the boat problems, one of the very first people that reached out to me through my inReach was well-built boats, you know, saying, Hey, what, what can we do? Is, is there anything right. that we can do to help you? And uh, there, there really wasn't, I mean, I'm, I'm in such a remote location. There's, you know, there's just not much they could do to help me, but uh, I'm actually working with them right now directly with the factory. Uh, uh, and I will, I will add, uh, I have a YouTube channel called Ageless Wonder. I will um, do a video on it. We are going to put all of their strongest accessories into a new boat. Uh, that I will use on Ageless Wonder for future trips. It's, I, I'm really looking forward to, to the build. Now, um, what is what is next for you? Uh, oh, my bucket list is long. There's, there's, I do a lot of adventures with my wife. We we cruised up to Alaska this spring, and uh, we want to go over to Iceland and see the Northern Lights. Uh, it's something I want to do with my wife. Uh, my wife is not the crazy adventure that i am that wants to sleep on the side of the river and be out in the cold and stuff uh she's more of a glamper but i really enjoy traveling with her uh so yeah the next big adventure is probably iceland and then for me and my solo adventures uh my bucket list includes um you know a lot of the local i've seen the ohio the mississippi the missouri i've seen uh, the atchafalaya the um um Ten Tom. Uh, I've seen a lot of the rivers. I haven't seen the Tennessee. I haven't seen the Red River. Uh, so there's some there's some rivers I want to go explore in within the United States. But then those are kind of I call minor adventures. And then my next two big adventures are probably going to be uh, the Great Loop. Are you familiar with that at all? No. What's that? Okay, the Great Loop you, is a trip through the central U.S. on the Illinois and uh, Mississippi rivers. Then you take the, the you follow the coastline all the way around the eastern United States up to Canada, and then you come. Uh, you can either cut through the canals at New York or go up to the St. Lawrence Seaway, cut across the Great Lakes back to the Illinois River in Chicago. It's about a six thousand mile trip. 
So that's one of one on my bucket list. And the other one I want to do probably will be one of the first ones I do is I'll do uh, the Inland Passageway up to Alaska, launch in Seattle, and then uh, you know run the edge of the Pacific Ocean through the islands up to the Aleutian Islands. That would be cool. That was going to be cool. We had a guy here this just a couple months ago on a bachelor hunt. It was oh, it was a ba- it was opening weekend of dove or opening day of dove season. I had a bachelor party here, and some of the guys were from Annapolis. And uh, okay. a guy that was here, him and his the t- two guys that were here took a boat from Annapolis and drove it all the way to Cleveland. <laughs> and they came up. Yeah. The, they came up the St. Lawrence River. That's that would be pretty interesting. Have you so the Columbia River you didn't mention that's not on your list because that's a wild river. Uh, yeah, it's just uh, it's something I'd like to do. Uh, it's just not really high on my bucket list. Uh, yeah, it's kind of the west side of the um, Lewis and Clark thing. Uh, but yeah, I'd like to. I'd like to see the Columbia. But I mean, I haven't. I'd like to get on the Red River and. Uh, you know, head up to Tulsa, Oklahoma from the Mississippi River. I, I just think that would be like ultra cool. And um, there's so many rivers that I, I've seen the Sabine, the Nueces, and from the coast all the way up to Livingston. And, you know, I, I've run almost all the Texas rivers all the way to the first dam where you can't go any further. Um, and I've paddle just about every river in texas from the top to the bottom i've paddled from big ben all the way to the coast on the on the rio grande river and so i've done a lot of exploring by water now did you sleep well on nights that you were just gonna go to sleep on the boat that's a really good question it was posed to me during the trip uh because you know you're sleeping in a boat uh the water's 34 degrees uh, how do you handle that? And uh, so what I did is I used a fanful sleeping pad. Uh, it's They're used by backpackers, not as much today, but old time. And I used that as my base layer, and it had a radiant la- uh, layer on it. And uh, so I'd put that down first, and it went from head to toe. And then I had a, uh, a really nice uh, blow-up air mattress that I used for backpacking. And I'd lay that down and... Um, because it was light, I would uh, I, I brought a sleep mask to put over my eyes. But typically, since it was cold, I'd just take you know what I had pulled over my head and just fold it over my eyes. And I'd put earplugs in, take a couple of melatonin, and I sleep as very I sleep as comfortable in my boat as I do at home or in a hotel. Hmm. So now I slept like a baby. I'd rather slept out in the uh, water than I would on the damn bank with the damn polar bears. Well, the bears do, I mean, they cruise the bank and, uh, I, so I, I read everything I could and I, uh, just crazy incident. I, I'm talking to this, uh, uh, oh, in, I'm having a private messaging with this lady that runs is the captain of a converted, uh, tugboat, icebreaking tugboat been converted to a yacht. And I was asking her about uh, what charts to use because the Garmin charts don't work up there. You have to go get special charts to work in special chart plotters to work up in the Arctic. And uh, she goes, well, would you like me to, um, uh, you know, get the guys that uh, trained my crew for the Arctic? Uh, and I, I'll set up a video conference. And I said, well, heck yeah, let's do that. So 
uh, lo and behold, it was the two Navy Special Forces guys from uh, England that had attempted the Northwest Passage. Get this, they did it in a 17-foot sailboat with a rowing rig oh, in it. Yeah. And uh, they, didn't, they didn't make it the whole way, but boy, did they have some experiences. <laughs> uh, one night, they were, they were sleeping on the bank in a little tent. And uh, they woke up, and the tent was compressed all the way down to their feet. It was a polar bear smelling their feet through the tent. Mm. And uh, mm-hmm. so uh, they had a weapon with them, and uh, they, but they, had, they just honked their air horn. And they had probably a half dozen very close encounters with um, polar bears, and, and they actually ended up having to— sh- uh, uh, fire round at a uh, a grizzly bear. Oh, excuse me, uh, yeah, a grizzly. Yeah, it's uh, early in their trip, but they had a number of encounters, and that's what kind of made my decision was to polar bear swim instead of grizzlies. <laughs> but with an electric fence around my boat, I uh, and electric fences are very they work very well against bears. Uh, I felt way more comfortable, and when when I went ashore. I had a Mossberg contender pistol grip, three inch magnum, six shot, loaded with three inch magnum double op bucks, uh, and my bear spray and bear bangers. And, you know, when I went on shore, I was ready for bears. You're loaded for bear. What do you do if you got to use the bathroom? You're out, out there. Use the bathroom. Uh, well, I, I had a bucket that was good for two things. Yeah. Number one and number two. Number one and number two. <laughs> and that's it. What? So, uh, no, my, my bucket uh, is uh, what I used. And uh, when I was out in the middle of nowhere, right in the bucket, if I was in a town, I was kind of in my tent, I'd just put a, a trash bag liner in it, uh, in my bucket. Mm. But What's uh, my wife always says that's TM, TMI. But <laughs> uh, when you're, when you're guys it. like us and you're in your deer stand and yeah. there's a bunch of deer out in front of you, you don't want to have to get out of the deer stand. You learn how to take care of those things. Yeah, you learn. You figure it out. You figure it out. Yeah. That's all you can do. Wasn't the yeah. north? Wasn't the Northwest Passage open completely, like in the 1700s, for about ten or twenty years? Uh, well, no. It's 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 never open for sure. Every trip through the uh, uh, passage is an attempt. Even today, it was first done by a guy named Roald Amundsen uh, in that time frame, and. Uh, uh, and it was very perilous, and he had to find the right route. And you probably have heard of the Franklin Expedition, where he lost both of his boats, and they've been recently found, and everyone was lost. But uh, yeah, I've I've read just about every account of every explorer that's ever been through the passage. But this year, the um, passage didn't um, open till uh, like July the 29th. It got where you could actually could go all the way through the passage. And then around August the 10th, it closed. The wind went northwest and uh, pushed all of the uh, ice and closed the Bellet Strait. And it closed uh, the the polar ice cap moved down to uh, uh, down toward Tuck. And so it's um, it it opens, but there's still a polar ice cap that can ice can get in there and close it the prevailing wind is southeast so when the prevailing wind runs it pushes the polar ice cap away from tuck and away from the the western shoreline where you need to 
uh, get to Baffin Bay. So now it's a, I had a, um, uh, an eye specialist assigned to me uh, through the Canadian Coast Guard that my router could call each day and uh, get um, <clears throat> insight on the ice. But yeah, some years it doesn't open still today. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah. That's crazy that's the deal that, on, that it could just close and, you know, and then you're stuck. It's not, <clears throat> I mean, try again next year. Well, unless you're like Mawani, uh, my one, excuse me, that I met with her tug with her ice breaking tugboat. Uh-huh. Uh, she had uh, she could go through three meter ice in that tugboat, and because I was talking to her, I said, "Well, is there any reason why you aren't going to make it through the passage?" She goes, "Oh no, Robert. As long as COVID's not there." It was so funny. I uh, I'd been in. I was, I was really hoping I'd run into my one, and uh, I because uh, the, the the Northwest Passage people is a very small group of people. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, more people have been to the top of Mount Everest than have been through the Northwest Passage, and not by a little. Way more people have been to the, the, the top of the world than have been through the Northwest Passage. So I was in Cambridge Bay, and my boat wasn't doing well, and I look out in the harbor, and there's my one's tugboat coming into the harbor, and I <laughs> uh, hopped in my boat, and I ran out there to her, and... Uh, Said, hey, my one, she's out on the front of her boat. It's like a 140 foot tugboat. And going, hey, Robert, she said, I can't believe you made it. <laughs> I said, oh, man, I, I, I made it. I got some problems. And she goes, well, if I can do anything to help, you just let me know. And she ended up being the one who gave me some resin to attach that uh, patch. But I ended up uh, having dinners on, I think, like four or five sailboats. Uh, that, uh, you know, I knew that they were coming through the passage and, uh, we'd see each other and, uh, they'd invite me aboard and, uh, no, it's a, it's a really tight group. And when you see each other, you go, um, go greet and, uh, tell stories. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, when you got, when, when, when you got the world, the Guinness book of world records, uh, did you know that you were going to be up for that? Or was this something that once you completed it, they reached out to you and was like, Hey, by the way, no, the Guinness world records, it's a, I'm not as high on them as I used to be. Uh It's a money grab, you know, it's a a way to generate money and uh, promote a beer line. And, uh, (laughs) so, uh, they, uh, if you really want to get a Guinness World Book of World Records, you have to apply in advance. Okay. So I, I applied almost when I went for the world record. I applied almost a year in advance, and I, w- I wanted to do it the free route. If you pay them a thousand dollars to get started, they do it real quick, and you can do it in a matter of weeks. It took me a year, and uh, they have to certify that your boat is. I was I was going for longest continuous journey in a john boat was my record and uh, so they had to certify that it was a john boat and what they mainly wanted to see that it had a bench seat no steering wheel you had to steer it with a tiller and uh, that it was basically flat they didn't require that it be totally flat (coughs) and um, they had to certify that the route would break the distance and uh, they sent me a bunch of forms. So twice a day, you had to find someone to sign a piece of paper that <coughs> was an independent third party. You had to collect receipts with timestamps on it. And it's pretty 
they, they kind of assured that you're getting a record. Mm-hmm. Um, but while I was doing the trip, you know, I got contacted by guys who said, well, you know, you're not going to really break the record because the record in Guinness was 600 miles. He says, well, I did an 850-miler. Another guy connected, contacted me <coughs> that did a 1,500-miler, and I'm really thankful all these guys were contacting me so I knew how far I needed to go. <laughs> and right before I finished, that guy contacts me and says, I wrote a book. I did a 1,700-mile trip from Minneapolis to somewhere in Georgia. And uh, I said, well, thank you. <laughs> so uh, that's going. what I added. Uh, so my trip to get the Guinness record was I um, I searched the United States to see what the longest trip you could make in a navigable waterway, um, you know, without having to go through too many locks. I had to go through lots of them. But I ended up starting in West Virginia on a little river called the Tiger. And I went uh, several miles down the Tiger to the Monongahela. The Monongahela is kind of famous because it's one of the three rivers that forms Three Rivers Stadium in Pittsburgh. And so I went uh, down the Monongahela to Pittsburgh to the mouth of the Ohio, went the full uh, thousand mile length of the Ohio to the Mississippi, Cairo, Illinois. And I went the full length of the Mississippi down to Venice. You know, that's where I um, call my brother and I said, how stupid is it going to be to try to cross the Gulf tomorrow? <laughs> I uh, went out in the Gulf, crossed 140 miles across the Gulf, and uh, came up the Atchafalaya to Morgan City. And so I knocked out 2,244 miles in 12 days. And then that is the record. We we can we can that, safely say with that, all the people that, reaching right, out to that's you. That's the record. That's the record. I don't, I don't think anyone's ever going to match it, but you never say never. So they'll, someone crazy as me will come along, but it, it's a lot of effort to to, to do to have a record. It, you, you, there's a lot of hoops what, you got to jump. What through. about the loop? What about going from the Atlantic and all the way doing that? Well, if I do that, that'll be a six thousand mile record. That'd be amazing. And, uh, it's just never been done in a John boat. Uh, it's it's been done in a, a two girls. Uh, I can't. There's a line. It's a company their daddy owned. Did it in a relatively small outboard and did the the Great Loop. It's been done in a um, uh, what do you got, a personal watercraft, um, and um, I don't know how that that guy pulled it off. It was done this year, and uh, but no, it's just never been done by John Boat. Now, and it would be I, I would camp right behind the Statue of Liberty, and I'd be doing lots of crazy stuff. It'd be a lot of fun. That's crazy. Well, I'm going to be sitting in Sodas Point, New York next month and on the St. Lawrence River. And if I see some guy coming by in a John boat, I'm thinking, that guy's going for the record right there. <laughs> he's trying to break it. Well, man, we appreciate oh, you being on here. You have one hell of a story, man. I'm telling you. And it's, you got a great outlook on life. Like, just just go live every day. Yeah, don't uh, don't sit in an easy chair and uh, watch adventure shows or just listen to blogs. Go out there and get invited by these crazy guys that run this blog here and uh, be on it, you know, go do something uh, that uh, excites you and get your uh, heart beating and something you have to plan for, for years because the planning and then the talk about it afterwards is, is pretty fun too. Although there's nothing beats being out there. But I do appreciate y'all having me on. It's been, it's been a ton of fun and uh, good luck on all your future adventures. And I, I hope everything goes well and uh, stay safe out there. I'll do it, man. Y'all have a good one. Thank you. Goodbye.
What a, Robert what, Ewens. What a story. Good Lord. That's a long way in a John boat. I don't like myself to be around just me for that long. Mm, that's a lot of... A lot of miles. And that was interesting about how they pushed the Indians up there in that area. What do you, huh? The the Canadian government. Oh, where we pushed yeah, ours to Oklahoma. Right. They pushed theirs. Well, Trudeau, maybe maybe some reparations are in order. Yeah. He didn't even give them fuckers casinos. <laughs> no, ain't <laughs> got nothing. But that is, you know, them people e- up there Eskimo, probably are better off and they're probably enjoying life. Eskimo better. being this derogatory term, well, yep, wasn't the evil white man that gave it to you. Nope, that was interesting. It was those Native Americans, those racist-ass Native Americans. Those are the ones that started calling you Eskimo. Very interesting, interesting man. Proud it Texan, is. very proud. Very Texan. proud, and uh, tell you what, he's got he's got an he's got a great attitude on him. Yes, he does. Really good deal. That's why you're supposed to live your life right there. Find you something you're passionate about and go live it. Well, thank y'all so much for listening to us. God bless y'all, and have a great week. Go check out all of our great sponsors. Listen, there's a couple promo codes you need to be aware of. With Pacific Calls, it is BHP25. Save yourself 25%. Dirty Duck Coffee, Big Honker, saves you 15% off at purchase. Uh, we are also brought to you by Ducks Unlimited, Stanfield Hunting Outfitters, Bangtail Whiskey, uh, Dive Bomb Industry, Boss Shot Shell, Specific Calls, Gun Dog Outdoors, Shin Gear Waiters, Lucky Duck, Looking Glass Podcast, Alpha Outdoor Specialties, uh, and Double T British Kennels. <laughs>